morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts chapter 9. This morning we are going to consider a fantastic conversion. The title of this morning's message is Brother Saul. There is a temptation to, I've been saying this a few times, my last few times up here, there's a temptation to try to pump some energy into the title to make it exciting. But I don't want to do that. I, I want to go with what keeps coming out of the page as I prepare. And hopefully, uh, maybe point out why such a title, simple title as Brother Saul, is such a profound thought when, you, when we consider what went into getting him to this place. Well, we're going to stand and read verses 9 through 18. If you have your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 9. Would you please stand as we read verses 1 through 18? I said 19, we'll make it 18. It's arbitrary. We could have gone to 19, but we'll stop at 18. <clears throat> then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. 
Please be seated. Well, we're out of time now. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> we are, at this point, about four or five years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. We look now at verse 1 yet again. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Then Saul still, yep, still gnawed on by the things that Stephen said, the sermon that Stephen preached. Luke emphasizes this still. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder. He's joining that attitude that Saul has at this moment with the preaching of, of Stephen, that sermon that set all this into motion, that sparked the persecution of the saints, which was very brutal. It, you can skim past it if you're careful and not comprehending what you're reading, but these were tough times for those first Christians, all because of this man, Saul. And he was so enraged by what he heard that he set out to destroy Christianity. Stephen's sermon completely just unraveled the theology of this man. He could not answer the charges that Stephen made, not uh, just according to reason, according to truth. He could not legitimately say, oh yeah, well, this is why. And still ricocheting in his mind are the points that were made. It's not unlike today when we preach the gospel to someone and they are under conviction and they do not want to submit to that conviction. They can become enraged. They have no defense. There's nothing they can say. So they take to what they can do. Saul heard every word in Stephen's message to Israel. And not only did he hear it, he felt it. He felt that sermon. And to add to that, there was the blood of Stephen that he could not get out of his mind. It's probably, you would think, uh, that they didn't see many people stoned to death. It's a violent, a brutal, gruesome experience, I would imagine, having not ever witnessed firsthand such an event. But he did, and it had to have impacted how he felt and how he thought. And he also knew that men do not face such things for fiction. The conviction that Stephen had was built on truth. And he could not get past all of these things. This is an intelligent man, a man that is used to thinking things through. He's not only a man of action. He's a man of meditation, contemplation. He's such a good student. He rose in the ranks among the Pharisees. And yet here he is infuriated. He turns to violence. Luke says, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. This is utter hatred for Christians, no less. Satan really did not need to stir Saul. Saul had enough religious hatred within him that he could move forward without the devil. That does not mean the devil was not playing his role. Later, Paul would say, giving his testimony about this experience on this road to Damascus in Acts 26, he says, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and 
being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he remembers that hatred, that venom. When he spit, it was venom. That's how unraveled he was. Unhinged, we could even say. I punished them often in the synagogues because that's where the Christians were going. They were going to the synagogue saying the Christ Jesus of Nazareth is our Messiah. And he says, I'm going to put an end to this. Too many Jews were coming to Christ. This um, is makes me mindful of Revelation 12. Satan's hatred for the Jews and for the church, Revelation 12, 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the hatred for Christians is real. In fact, Satan not only hates Christians, he hates humans. Add to that the Christians who are trying to get the other humans to believe in Jesus Christ so that they would not face a judgment and perish in their sin. Just to recap what was happening in this man's life, he made havoc of the church, as we read here in verse, as we will read in verse 3. He beat the saints, according to his testimony in chapter 22, compelled them to blaspheme, chapter 26, and it's just an overview. People were really experiencing these things. He persecuted the church, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He persecuted beyond measure to destroy it, according to Galatians 1. And then he says, I was an ignorant blasphemer, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Jacob, the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of Israel, when he is prophesying and commenting on his sons and their future, he gets to the tribe of Benjamin, from which Saul was. Saul was a Benjamite. And he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. And we see it carried out. Not to say that this Paul, Paul, Saul is completing that prophecy, but you cannot dismiss it. In verse 2, it tells us that he asked letters from him, that is the high priest, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the Christians are still, again, going to the synagogues, and really the identity is, is being developed. They, as a people, uh, as a Christians, they're just not yet fully where they're going to be. It's this transition period. And uh, they don't want to be known as a sect of Judaism. We talked about the close, close call Christianity had in Acts chapter 6, where the word was almost made secondary to community needs, uh, something that is practiced in many places. Then when we get later on, we come to uh, Paul in Antioch, and he has to stand up against Peter and Barnabas. Christianity almost died right there because it would have been known as a sect of Judaism. And Paul says, no way, I, did, I withstood, I didn't give them, and not for one hour did I yield to this. Christianity is the development of Judaism, development of the Old Testament, that is. Judaism is not always in line with what God says. And the Old Testament is. And so here he now, in verse 2, he has warrants for their, their arrests. 
Rome is going to look the other way. Rome has control and authority over Damascus and Jerusalem, Syria, all that region. But long as they're not being challenged, they'll look the other way and let the Jews work this out. And this city, said to be one of the old, said to be the oldest continuously populated city in, in human history to this day, this uh, Damascus, there were trade routes that would uh, come through this city. The Jews, when they were in captivity, they learned business and they learned it well. And when they were free to go back to Jerusalem, many stayed in Babylon and others dispersed throughout the, the Gentile world and set up shops, set up businesses, established synagogues and communities and lived there. Well, there's a large one here in Damascus. And Saul knows that and he's targeting those synagogues so that he can flush the Christians out. Here, Christianity is referred to uh, the way. Well, it goes back to Christ saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It will come up again, but later the, the, term, the, the title Christian will uh, eclipse uh, the phrase the way. In verse 3, not that it's wrong. Verse 3, and he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Remember, he's still seething. He is boiling. The hatred, he can't wait to get there. One commentator said, this is noonday, incidentally, and we're told that by Paul later on. One commentator said he doesn't even stop for the noon siesta. He is just in such a hurry. He's traveling 140 miles from Jerusalem, linear miles, from Jerusalem to, to Damascus. He can't wait to get there. When Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, he says, Brethren, again, what a, he wasn't a brethren at this moment, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Remember, he said he was an ignorant blasphemer. Here's a man that knows what he's talking about. He says, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of of Judaism. Whatever people we meet in the scripture, whatever they're dealing with, the same is happening somewhere in our lifetime. There are those that have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that is where we're supposed to come in. And this is why Bible study is supposed to mean something. At some point, Bible study has to meet the road. There must be this transition from this experience in your study and devotional time to actually facing the temptations and the lost souls. Now, when I say we face the temptations, I don't mean the singing group, but I... <laughs> All right, let's come back to this where it's safe. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now, again, chapter 22 and 26, Paul says it's about noonday. This is the glory of God. This is a theophany. It is an appearance of God in a created item. In this case, it is light. Remember, the Jews were led in the wilderness by a, a cloud in the day and fire by night. This is the light that uh, shone on him, blinding him. He'll tell us that later. I might quote it as we move on. But 1 Timothy chapter 6 
Paul says, who alone, the king of kings, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. When God wants to turn it on, no one can endure it. It's too powerful. Uh, he told the prophet Elijah, and he told Moses, you can't look at me, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Christ, and I believe Paul writing this, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, where he deserved to be. You know, you can't call anyone Lord but Christ and not enter into blasphemy. You cannot say, the Lord Peter, the Lord Michael. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is distinct, it is exclusive, and it speaks of his deity, that he is God the Son. When Jesus prayed in John 17, which is truly the Lord's prayer, because it is him praying, whereas in, when he's in Matthew 6, when he says, you know, our Father who, is, who art in heaven is really the disciples' prayer. He he's telling them how to pray. But back to John 17, Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Who can say that? Who can say to God, put me on the level with you, glorify me with you? This is uh, things that the Jehovah Witnesses don't want to even know about. All the Mormons, they are the two leading proponents of rejecting who Jesus is. He continues in John 17, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He came forth from the Father. And this is that light that is a signature uh, uh, move of God to come with this light into the presence of humans. Light is the one thing that cannot be soiled. You, you can't dirty light. Verse 4, Then he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he's intercepted. Didn't see this coming. When he got up that morning, he did not, there was no clue in his mind what his day had in store for him and his future. His conversion is a picture of how the nation of Israel will be saved when Jesus returns. It's a little picture of that. But he says, the Lord does, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Twice repeated, it's common. Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon. When the Lord wants to emphasize something, he knows how to do it. When the Lord wants to talk to you or me, he knows how to do that. But he does not say, why are you persecuting them? Is why are you persecuting me? This is personal. You touch, you touch the people of Christ, you're touching Christ. Whether it is for love or whether you are being hostile. In this very instant, Saul learned that to touch Christ was to touch believers. Matthew 25, Jesus said, I say to you in as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Whether it is good or bad. If you, if, if you are messing with God's people or if you are blessing God's people, you're doing it to Christ. And it's, it's 
interesting that you look at the Old Testament and God most often referred to the Jews as my people. But here, to the church, he refers to them as me. Pretty insightful. Of course, the church is Jew-Gentile. There's, there's no, there's no uh, the distinction. They're one. They're Christians. They're no longer Jews. They're no longer Gentiles. They're Christians now. And we'll come back to that. And that's what the whole letter to the, of the, to the Hebrews is all about. You're now Christians. You're not supposed to be engaging in those things that have been made obsolete because Christ has fulfilled them. Think not that I came to destroy the law, law, but to fulfill it. In the same way that an oak tree uh, makes an acorn obsolete. It outgrows it. It becomes something else, but not without that acorn. Uh, I like when I pull up acorns in the, in the spring, you pull them, there's still little saplings, and the, the acorn is still attached to the sprout. And it always reminds me of what Jesus has done and what he said Think not that I've come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that acorn has fulfilled its role in bringing life into the world. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Instant conversion. Who are you, Lord? At that point, he is saved. What Jesus could not get from Judas in three years, he gets from Saul in three seconds. It's instant. Others before Saul had spectacular encounters with God, even more so than this, and still died in unbelief. Cain, Balaam, Pharaoh of Egypt, Korah, who rebelled against the authority of Moses and Aaron, and Judas Iscariot. But Saul's not wasting this. He's going to take it all. How many people go to church and waste it? I mean a good church. <laughs> they go, can go to a bad church and not waste any of that. But go to a good church and waste it. Don't even know when they're getting good pastoral care, good Bible studies. They don't even recognize when the people are genuinely loving towards them. They have opportunities to serve. It goes right over their heads. It's unfortunate. I don't have an antidote for it, except to press forward and let the Lord sort it out. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He asked, who are you, Lord? He's submitted completely to whoever this is engaging him, and he wants to know. And the Christian has to live their life asking Christ, who are you, more and more. Whatever we learn about him, there's more to learn about him. And that appetite should never go away. So he repeats this. Jesus does. I am Jesus, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He's repeating this from verse 4 for clarification. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads is plural here. It has been poking him, poking, you know, uh, Shamgar, the judge, defeated, you know, uh, the enemies of God's people with an ox goad. It's a, a stick with a point on it, little variations, but essentially you just you, you, you poke the ox, and, and there's not much the ox can do about it. He can kick all he wants. He, that stick's long enough. He's going to get poked into submission. Today we use electronic cattle. Well, I don't. When I say we, <laughs> people use electric, electronic cattle prods. They hurt. I know that. I've had a little one zap me when I was a kid, but... Uh, my mom thought I was a goat or something. Anyway, 
it's, is it, uh, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You can't escape the truth. You know that everything Stephen said is right. You can't get away. This gives the authority while he is still seething, still wrecking havoc on the church. Why is he still at it? It's because the goads, the truth. Why fight it so? You can't escape it. He's in a bear hug. Truth has got him in a bear hug. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. They're driven in, and they're driven in with care. The shepherd speaks of care. It's not malicious. And Stephen's sermon was not malicious. Which of the prophets do you not crucify, did you not kill? I mean, it's not, nothing malicious. It's a fact. Verse 6, so he, and I love this part, he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Him, he's trembling. He's astonished. He's telling Luke. Luke wasn't there for this. He says, I was shaking like a leaf. And Luke wrote that down. That's part of this experience. That is the impact Christ had on this man who was boiling over with hatred. And in an instant, it is all redirected. It is, the hatred is flushed. And everything moves into a different zone in his thinking, in his life. This was fantastic. Truth and love, like an avalanche on top of him. And he couldn't process. It just, it just happens. First Corinthians, he says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? He asked, who are you, Lord, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, that I may know him. He spent his whole life doing it, just like Jeremiah said. Not boast about your wealth, your intelligence, or whatever else. If you're going to boast, boast on this, that you know me, that you understand. Then if you do that, you won't be boasting. You'll be rejoicing. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Every Christian should be asking Christ this. Again, the title, Lord, declares the right to rule. That's what it means when you... When you say, Jesus is my Lord, you're saying, he has the rights over me. He owns me. I am his. He is my master. He has this right. It is by consent, free will. That's love. You cannot have love without free will. It's not possible. No one knows of any love without free will. You can't say, okay, I love you, but I don't want to love you because I hate... Well, I know, no, I know, I know. We can love somebody and because maybe they're breaking our hearts. We're going to stop loving them. I don't mean in that context. Love is something that uh, we want to do to God, not that we're forced to do. And some of you might be saying, are you attacking Calvinists? And I'm saying, absolutely. Okay. Uh, anyway, coming back to this... Lord, what do you want me to do? Uh, The Christian walk. Does it not commence with surrender? That's what he is doing here. 
Conversion happens the instant we acknowledge the lordship of Christ over us personally. Romans 10, verses uh, verse 9. I'll just take verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul would later write, no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. I'll read it again. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. The point is, he is saved in this instant. He is saved. He is not filled with the Spirit yet. He's not water baptized yet. He's going to be baptized in both soon. But he is converted. He is now a Christian. He is now Brother Saul. He doesn't even know it. He doesn't, know how, you know, he doesn't have time to think it all out yet. He just submitted. He's in a state of utter submission. Hebrews 8, verse 13. And that he says a new covenant or new testament. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's his Judaism. It's turned into Christianity. That is the course Christ has set For the Old Testament to turn into the New Testament. To join it. To be reconciled together with the New Testament being dominant. There remains one more experience for him. Well, they're going to be a lifetime experience. But the experience that he's, now that he's saved, he still has to be filled. He doesn't have to be. He's saved. But he's going to be filled. Then the Lord said to him, arise and go. Get up and go. The military has mastered this. Get up, go, and wait. <laughs> and wait, and wait. Probably the number one cause for people is, i got to get out of this place. Is, all right, well, anyway. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, Christian from long ago, said, Anyone can devise a plan by which good people may go to heaven. Only God can devise a plan whereby sinners who are his enemies can go to heaven. That's what we're looking at. This man, this man Saul, who will become Paul, he's an enemy of Jesus Christ. That's how it started out. Still breathing threats of violence, havoc upon the church. It says, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So go and wait. Leading through delay. God does this so often. You don't like it, and neither do I. (laughs) But the spiritual side of us embraces it. Because we know he's always right, and he is Lord. But it's that carnal side, that old nature, that will be with us until we go to Christ. That's who we have to deal with, in addition to your neighbors. Verse 7. Now, some of you, I mean, have great neighbors, but not the whole block. (laughs) Surely there's got to be one. Anyway, coming back here. Verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Uh, when he says stood, it's not always literally. This, they're with him. And at some point, they all did get up. Uh, but when he tells it later, he recount, retells the story, he says they all fell to the ground. Uh, there was no mistake that this was a spiritual event unfolding in front of these men. Daniel speaks of a similar experience with men, with witnesses there. 
But we don't read of these men who are attending Paul, who are with Paul, we don't read any more of them, of their being saved, of their inquiring. Uh, they lead him into the city and they just vanish from the story. That makes me think how many people experience something from Christianity that is very genuine and different and unlike, any, well, unlike anything else and then go no further with it. Well, it is uh, what we'll learn later on is that Jesus is speaking to him here in the Hebrew. Most people, the common people, spoke the Aramaic and not the Hebrew. The scholars spoke the Hebrew. Paul was a scholar. And so they heard the voice. They just couldn't understand what was being said because they didn't speak the Hebrew. And Paul pointed out in chapter 26 that the Lord spoke to him in Hebrew. And it's a nice touch that is uh, put into the story to clarify for us um, what, um, what is going on and who these people were. In verse 8, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And so Luke, uh, you know, he, but he opens his eyes and saw no one. Well, you can just, you know, it's a bit ambiguous. Well, do you mean no one was there? No, he, he was blind. That's what's happening here. Spiritually, he was already blind. Now he's physically blind, but spiritually he can see. Acts 22, verse 1. I could not see for the glory of that light. I saw the light. I heard the voice, Paul would say. It is that light that blinded him. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, gloriously humiliating. He's being led like a little kid. He comes in, he's this prosecutor with all this authority to arrest and punish people, inflict great harm on them. And here he is, dependent on his servants now. They can't even survive without others. Matthew 18, verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that not illustrated for us in this? Are there not those people that are too full of themselves, too arrogant, too self-important, too self-righteous, too self-whatever, to really receive from Christ or any of his people? Paul was saved not because of Judaism, but he was saved not without the Old Testament. Though that understanding of the scriptures... Without that, he wouldn't know what was going on. Since this day, Jews are invited to believe, not as Jews, but as sinners. And the same goes for Gentiles. That's why there's no longer Jew or Gentile. You're called to believe, not as a Jew, not as a Gentile, but as a sinner. And that's what he's doing here. He's going to work this out so well that he will be the one that articulates Christianity. Without this articulation of this Saul the Apostle, who becomes Paul the Apostle, the church would have just still been, you know, the other apostles never really put it out there like Paul does, making this distinction, making us understand. We come to God as sinners. And that's how he receives us, and that's how we are saved. And you cannot say, I believe, without confessing your sin and being converted. Verse 9, 
And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So intense that hunger bowed to the experience of faith. Jesus had flipped his world upside down completely. And he doesn't know his identity. It's, it's, everything is just an extreme makeover. Unraveled in an instant and weaved back together at the same time in a flash of light. A lifetime of wrong thinking is instantly dumped. Instantly. He knows every. Those of you who have been saved, you know what's going on here. You know when you came to Christ from a, from a life wherever you were. I would, I would believe that it more than likely was instant. That recognition. Oh, there was a process leading up to it, but it came to a point where Jesus is Lord. Second Corinthians four. He writes, "For it is the God." For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I hope you're seeing that by reading these verses from other writings of Paul, how much this experience impacted the rest of his life. It got in that deep into him. For the rest of his life, every thought would be processed and filtered in the presence of Jesus Christ. If he lost his temper with someone, he knew, he knew Christ was still there. With the mercy. And saw also with what, with the obedience, the need to, be, to obey. And we, we know this as Christians. And that's why we love to know when Jeremiah says his, his mercies are new every morning. Jeremiah wrote those verses as he wept over the ruined Jerusalem, the ruined people of God, he still understood the mercy of God in the midst of all those things. Don't let Satan, who hates your guts, tell you because you goof up, you trip up, you repeat the same mistakes, that somehow you're not saved. That somehow you are less important to Christ, less useful to Christ. Default back to his mercies are new every morning. And if they weren't, none of us could serve him. Paul, at this conversion, now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, is an outcast because of Christ amongst his own people. He's a turncoat at this point. That's how they're going to view him. They will hate him and they will seek to kill him with the same intensity that he was targeting the Christians. The Christians, they will question his conversion. So he's almost a man with nowhere to go. Now that will develop. He doesn't know this yet, but that will develop. He will do well in Damascus amongst those Christians, but when he gets to Jerusalem, it'll be another story. Jerusalem, perhaps the most spiritually unique place on earth. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Now, there was, verse 10, a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Meanwhile, God, while Saul is going through all of this in his life, God is mobilizing his servants. And in this case, it will be Ananias and Judas. A man, not Judas Iscariot, of course. Uh, neither one 
have any idea of the magnitude surrounding the events that they are participating in. And there are lessons in that. You, you know, some have entertained angels unaware. These people are entertaining the great apostle Paul to be unaware. Uh, that's, that's a story that they could tell their grandkids. I'm the one that put my hands on him so he could receive his sight back. Me, that was me. No, he wouldn't. He's too humble, and we're going to get to him a little bit. Uh, you get so much from just a couple of verses of somebody in the Bible, you just get almost a life story sometimes. Verse 11, So the Lord said, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. This ain't over from Ananias. This is Ananias is uh, what? You got you got the right name. You don't mean Saul. You mean Simon, Lord. You you made a typo there. This name Judas it became popular amongst the Jews. The name Judas during the revolt of the Maccabees. Judas Maccabee led one of the the phases of the revolt against Syrian rule. And uh, Judah, it's Judah in the Hebrew. It becomes Judas in the Greek. And by the time it makes its way to English, it's Jude. And if you're California, it's Jude. (laughs) Anyway. I used to do that a lot. I lost all my Californian friends. (laughs) And no, I did not. But anyway, well, I only had two. Still my friends. Anyway, back to, he tells him Saul is praying. And while he's telling Ananias, Saul is praying. And while he is praying, he sees you. That's what he's telling him. And this is quite remarkable. The God is all over the place. He's, you know, the ubiquitous. Uh, already this man Saul is touching other lives. And, and no one even knows, those fa- you know, not yet gotten there. He's, he's on the road, he gets converted, and, and God mobilizes these two men, and lives, it, it's all in motion now. Verse 12, and in a vision, God's still speaking, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So God is saying, hey, I, I want you to go to this man Saul, he's seen a vision of you. And Luke is probably saying, how do I use the pronouns? I use the name as he's recording this. How do I communicate that God is saying to Ananias, Saul is, had a vision and you're in it. And your name, he's got your name already. And then the difference between a vision and a dream is one you're, the dream you're sleeping and the vision you are still awake. And so when God said Ananias and he said, here I am, Lord, he is still awake. Uh, Saul is blind at the moment, likely in a bed or a chair somewhere. Uh, Well, we know where he's at, the house of Judas on the street called Straight. So these are two connected visions. Verse 13, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. A reasonable objection by this servant. He's not being a wise guy. He's not saying, no, I'm not going to do this. Uh, it is a fair uh, comeback. He wants to be clear about this. Saul's reputation pre- preceded him. And so Ananias is saying, are we talking about Saul? <laughs> Let's get this right, Lord. Is this the guy that's the troublemaker? Or is this Saul the baker? 
Um, anyway, after it all, um, Ananias is going to be up and obeying, doing what he is to do. Uh, and Ananias is going to have his hands uh, in this, this matter. He says, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Well, we just briefly uh, reviewed Paul's own testimony of how much damage he did to the church. Well, here Ananias is giving us a commentary on Saul's behavior. Maybe, maybe you know someone that supposes they are too sinful to be saved. That's just a weak, lame excuse to saying, I do not want Jesus to be my Lord. If characters like Saul of Tarsus can be saved, men like David can be forgiven and, and elevated, if uh, kings like Manasseh can be saved, anybody can be. Uh, this is just um, something we should tell if you come across as someone that says, well, you know, I've just got too much in my life. No, you don't. No, Jesus is big enough to, f- to forgive it all. And if you don't agree with that, then you're calling him a liar. Let's just be upfront about the whole thing so you don't walk away thinking you won the argument. Well, um, may this never be truly said of any of us, how much harm he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And the first Christians, the, the first Christians are for the first time referred to as saints here in the New Testament. Of course, the Old Testament saints uh, are, have been, but this is, this is now the transition. And so the Christians are now referred to as saints. They are alive. They're not uh, voted on by a college of people who don't know the Bible or don't like the Bible. Uh, you know, you don't, you're not, you don't achieve sainthood through the vote of humans. You become a saint and no longer an ain't the minute you give your life to Christ. You're separated to him. And so that's why when Paul wrote his letters to the saints at Rome, to the saints at Ephesus, they were alive and well and people just like you and I. Well, uh, John will also use this word a lot. Paul mostly, and then John, Judea, does also referring to the Old Testament. Logic can interfere with obedience. That's what we're learning from also from this with Ananias. A logical reply, this guy is a troublemaker, uh, but God clears it up for him. He doesn't just take it upon himself. Uh, verse 14, you know, like the people that want to go pet a lion uh, you know, just, oh, he's so cute. And climb over the fence. That, that's the process. Anyway, verse 14. <laughs> and here he has authority. Ananias is still speaking. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He has the arrest warrants. So here's now where we're going to get to. He's going to be off and following orders. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. I don't think the tone of God is harsh here. There's no reason for it to be harsh. You know, he, Abraham bantered with him. What if, peradventure, there's 50 men in, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah? And the Lord said, Good luck with that. Uh, he didn't say that, but that's what it came down to. Of course, we don't believe in luck. Please don't get me on that one. We don't believe there's some unaccounted for power out in the universe that influences our lives. We know that um, all things belong to God. And then there is the God of the air 
who corrupts everything he can, being, of course, the devil. So God shares with Ananias his outreach plan for Gentiles, their rulers. That's pretty far in scope. But the Jews aren't forgotten. Paul does not just become a Gentile, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. He's still apostle to whoever, Jew, Gentile, anybody who will, he'll preach the gospel to them. God will warn that this transition, this outreach, will bring suffering into Paul's life. In Acts 26, Paul gives us a little bit more information about this dialogue uh, that he, he that is going on here. He says, to open the eyes of, of the Gentiles and, and Jews in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that he may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is very clear. If you are praying for somebody who is lost in their sins, I would encourage you to pray that they are delivered from Satan, or to at least be mindful that Satan is in this. This person is not just an unbeliever. There's a lot more to it. There's not just one part. There are other parts. And if we can address them all, Uh, At least in my prayer life, I do. I know people that Satan has got them. I've hit them with the gospel, with logic that they cannot refute. And yet they still hold tight to resisting the, the Lord Jesus. I'll say to them, you know, God has been looking out for you. And I'll itemize some of the things. Remember this? Remember that? And they will agree. I agree. But they won't convert. That is Satan. Helping them be uh, just uh, adamant. I'm not going to give Jesus the satisfaction of converting me. That is just more than uh, human stupidity. Which can't be underrated. Human stupidity is pretty big stuff. I don't know firsthand. But Isaiah 60 verse 3. We're almost done. So I won't read too many. The Gentiles shall come to your light. The kings to the brightness of your rising. And that is we're seeing this in the apostles. But the Jews as a people, they never really knew how to invite the outsider in. They were so busy blocking the outsiders. And we as Christians got to be careful of that. We do the same thing if we're not careful. We, you know, someone comes to church with, you know, shrapnel all in their, I mean, piercings um, all in their face. And, you know, you want to just tell them, no, I'm sorry, we've got high-powered magnets here and you'll be harmed. You can't come in. We can't do that. I mean, you just got to welcome them in. And then um, after they get saved, then you can let them have what you really think about them. No, you can't. No, we, we love the, the peers, the people that have drawings on their bodies. Look, if you're going to get a tattoo, I would encourage, get the press-ons. Because you can change them out. You could change, you could, and it don't hurt. And and fifty years from now, you you know this. All right, all right. I'm not saying anything bad about it if that's what you're doing. <laughs> Kidding. See, I don't appreciate that. Well, listen, it's one of the perks of having a pulpit. You get to pick on certain groups, harmlessly so. And you who like bananas know who you are. So, anyway. I know there's a pastor somewhere picking on bald-headed men. I hope all his kids are born naked. 
Anyway, verse 16. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Uh, there's a recruiting banner. Look, uh, so I had a friend that was a Navy recruiter when I was 16. I was turning 17. I was 17 well, into that. And so I was going to join the Marines. And he's like, you don't want to be these guys. These guys are weird. They don't go, they don't, they do nothing like the rest of us. And he didn't know he's selling it to me. He's a tra he said, this, their life is brutal. It's just, you know, and his name was Mike. And I was so sorry I lost touch with our really good friend. Anyway, he was selling the Marine Corps to me. When I got in there, Mike, I should have listened to you. <laughs> I should have listened to you. Anyway, uh. This is, uh, how do you recruit people? You show them how many things they're going to suffer. Okay, I'll give my life to Christ. Well, that's what happened. Paul will write about this in chapter 20. Uh, he'll say, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. And he goes on to develop that thought. But without time, verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, as you came, has sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is majestic. The man who is coming to lay hands on people to arrest them is having hands laid on him to bless him. He said, Brother Saul. The first words out of his mouth is a term of endearment and love. Look, blood as a rule is thicker than water, but there are exceptions. And it is found often in the church. You can have people in the church that are closer to you than, than your own siblings. Uh, it's just a fact. There's no hostility in that. Uh, Paul would recall this when he talks about Ananias in chapter 22. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, said, Now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. So here again, the Lord Jesus, uh, who appeared to you on the road, he has sent me to you. So Paul had that experience of the Holy Spirit next to him, the preposition en, en, in the Greek, uh, para, pardon me, para, where when Stephen was preaching, the Holy Spirit was there convicting Saul. Then he has this experience, uh, when he sees Christ, then the Spirit of God will, will come into Paul, and he will become a believer. But there's still a third experience, epi, that preposition where the Spirit comes upon Paul. And this is going to happen uh, at, at this time. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins, Proverbs 10, 12. This filling would lead Paul to do the preaching he's going to do in chapters and verses 20. 21 and the rest of his life. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and arose and was baptized. No coincidence, once blind, now he sees. Somebody should write a song like that. And he arose and was baptized. And he, is, he was immersed in the spirit by Jesus Christ, his salvation. Uh, he was immersed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, his salvation. And then Christ immerses him in the Holy Spirit, and that is the filling. He is soaked with the Holy Spirit. And unlike Lot's wife, Paul never looks back. Hard to walk forward when you're looking back. I close with this verse. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Very personal. Paul says, I am saved. I preached it, you get saved, but let me remind you, I know I am saved. Jesus loves me also. And a lot of, a lot of folks have a hard time with that, I think. Understanding God's love for them. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, Lord, a lesson that has so many applications for all of us. We pray that uh, we who believe would learn how to extract from your word these lessons and use them as tools uh, for those who are lost and saved and weapons against the enemy. And we pray that uh, if anyone has been listening, not opened their heart to Christ, has not called you Lord, but knows that you are beckoning them, calling them, inviting them, If I'm talking to you, if you want to give your life to Christ, then step forward. Call him Lord and Savior. Make the confession and have your life changed forever and your destiny along with it. Now, Father, we commit all these things into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.